welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors. We're so happy for you to join us in this episode. This episode is great because we have learned how uh, delinquent we are in our own marketing and advertising of this podcast. And so, so we yeah. will, uh, we need to get on our uh, social media and maybe even have an email address. Is that right, Jen? Yeah, I think that would be a good plan. <laughs> so, so yes, reach out to us, but we don't know how you will do that. Uh, but we are going to work on that. But uh, we have a wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Malia Jade Roberson with us. And so Jen, tell us a little bit more about Dr. Roberson. All right. She is a music theorist specializing in music theory pedagogy and music entrepreneurship. Her online business, Music Theory Shop, is a unique shop for music teachers building their businesses and for music students seeking additional theory resources such as theory printables and her publications as well as fun music-themed merchandise are also available there. Digital theory workshops are forthcoming on her site soon. She has published Music Theory Staff Paper in 2019 and Visualized Keyboard Scales and Modes in 2020 with Hal Leonard. Malia is a lecturer in performing arts music at California State University Channel Islands, located in Camarillo, California, and she lives in Pasadena, California with her rambunctious boxer bulldog, Cooper. And we had a really phenomenal time talking to her. It was a blast and the time flew by. So here is Malia. But if we can just sort of be very real to our students now moving forward, I think that that would serve them so much better. Never once as an undergrad or graduate school did any of my professors say anything about um, how to make a living. Nobody mm-hmm. talked about music career. Nobody talked about music career. They just talked about, uh, I'm, I'm happy to write you a letter of rec. You know, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, just making the assumption that we're going down the academia path. Mm-hmm. And it's just not, it's not for everybody. So today's very special guest is Malia Jade Roberson. We're so happy to have you on our podcast, Malia, to talk with us about music theory, entrepreneurship, and uh, the career that you've kind of carved for yourself uh, in the field of music and music theory. Um, So before we kind of get into um, some specific questions, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about their background, how they got into music theory. You know, was it the moment you first set eyes on the Alan Fort pitch class set chart? That just got you going, got you jacked about music theory, or maybe I'll maybe I'm just talking about myself. <laughs> yeah, Paul, you can speak for yourself on that. Um, first of all, thank you all so much for having me. I feel uh, like I'm in such good company um, with you all, and then plus, like you guys had Rachel Mann, you had Lee Van Handel. I mean. I respect these women so much. They are role models for me. They are mentors to me. So um, I'm just really very honored to be here. So thank you for having me. Uh, Short bio. So 
I started off with piano at a very young age. I started when I was six. And I grew up in a kind of household where my parents never forced me to practice. I just played and played, and I just got a lot of positive feedback from that. So I just kept it up. And um, when I was in, I guess when I was in high school, I started where I never had a like a Starbucks job or like a mall job, anything like that. I started working in music right away. So my first job, I uh, started working when I was 14 and I was a lounge pianist and I worked at a Chinese restaurant doing background music. And then I also, um, I had a church job. I was playing piano as uh, an accompanist for children's choir for the San Juan Capistrano Mission. And by the way, I grew up in Southern California in uh, San Clemente. I was born in Honolulu, uh, but we came over. I was actually raised in San Clemente. But uh, I worked for um, I worked for the mission and my choir director. Uh, she used to be my former. She was my former choir teacher in junior high and high school. And she had a freak accident. Uh, Renee Bondi, Renee Lacroix first before she got married. And she became an, uh, a quadriplegic. So my first experiences as following from following a conductor was following somebody who literally had no like wrist movement. I had to follow her, and so it just I think it just skyrocketed my my musicianship right away. And um, I loved those jobs. I I was a church musician for a very long time. And actually, uh, being a church musician, I it, it helped put me through grad school as well. It always is. I've always kind of had that as a side job. I'm not doing it anymore. But um, I did that. And then I ended up going to community college. And my theory classes, I did not do well. I did not do well at all. I was like a C student, which is sort of unacceptable for me. And especially when I'm playing Rachmaninoff and Prokofiev sonatas. Um, and I just did not get it at all. By the way, I think you guys will appreciate this. Uh, my first day at community college, my professor, Norm Weston, the first thing he did was he played black angels and he said, (laughs) black angels. And he said, welcome to music theory. So that was my first experience (laughs) going into uh, music theory. Um, But anyway, I was not a great music theory student at all. I did not get it. And then I went on to um, undergrad at UC Santa Cruz. Again, I was an okay music theory student, maybe like B's, B pluses, A minuses, but still, you know, I'm that kind of high achieving type of person. And I, and I also, I really saw the link immediately, even though I I may not have been able to articulate it, the link between my, my performance pianist, you know, being a pianist, um, and I was a working pianist. I was like an in-demand pianist already, um, in the Santa Cruz area, but I saw this link between piano and my and theory, being able to perform with uh, by understanding theory. So I wanted to learn it even more. Um, I ended up getting my master's in uh, piano at, at uh, UC Santa Cruz, and I kept working for a few years. Kept working. Uh, uh, I had a piano studio of students, a couple dozen students. I had several piano collaborative jobs. I was working for various choirs, um, playing for faculty recitals. Um, 
And then I decided to uh, go back to grad school and I was sort of teetering on, should I do collaborative piano or should I do music theory? And I decided to do music theory because I wanted to be in the classroom. I didn't want to just do applied lessons. I think applied lessons, that's great. But I was also just getting worn out with performance. Um, I have severe performance anxiety and being on the stage, especially as a solo pianist, that wasn't fun. And I think that if you're not having really, truly having fun at something that maybe that's not the thing for you. So even though I read music like a book, I sight read, I can play. And I was, I was, you know, working a lot. I just, um, I didn't enjoy it a hundred percent for that very reason. The performance anxiety got a little bit better when I was in a collaborative environment, but solo piano, uh, that was, that was really tough. Um, and I've done some big pieces. I did the Stravinsky piano concerto and I played, um, you know, my, my, my senior recitals and my graduate recitals. I did Hinastera, uh, lots of 20th century stuff. I really, I really dig, but the performance anxiety always was in the back of my mind. And after every recital, I'd be like, I'm never doing this again. I never, I never want to go through this again. You know, in my, in my undergrad recital, they literally had to push me on stage. I did not want to go. Um, it, it, it just was so terrifying really. And I could not get the focus on stage with, with hundreds of eyeballs on me. I like, I just, I just was freaking out every time. And you know what, that's like, I think that when you're in that position, I think it makes the music more about you and less about the music, you know? And so I, I really felt like I couldn't, I couldn't overcome that unless I knew more theory, unless I had some help understanding my music and being able to memorize it. And so I really did see that link and I really did, um, sort of romanticize like we all do about, you know, being a music professor and having our office and having our music library and having our office hours and all of that. Like that was, <laughs> I very much wanted to do that. And, uh, you know, when I started finally, you know, teaching, actually I'm getting ahead of myself. I ended up doing my PhD at U UC Santa Barbara. I ended up going to Santa Barbara because I wanted to work with Peter Vanentorn. Um, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to understand what the heck I played. I played that Stravinsky piano concerto. And then I'm like, what, what did I play? <laughs> you know, what, what is this about? How does this music work? So I decided to do a dissertation on Stravinsky and to study Stravinsky. And so I went to UC Santa Barbara, studied with um, Peter Vanentorn who was my advisor, um, just incredible in every, every way possible. I learned so much from him and just continued to get lots of support, um, from him. Uh, so after I graduated uh, with my PhD, I was blessed enough to get a job. It was not a, um, a permanent position, but it was a full-time, my first full-time job 
and I worked at Occidental College, Occidental College in Los Angeles. So that's how that's what got me into the L.A. area. Mm -hmm. And that was a phenomenal experience. Um, I learned so much on the job. You know, you go in thinking, you know, a lot. You do know a lot. (laughs) We do know a lot. But um, it's one thing to just sort of, you know, know what an applied dominant is, how to resolve a German augmented six chord. It's another thing to teach that to somebody and to get somebody excited about that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. The excitement right. Part is the key. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> um, or to just be like, what? You know, I I feel like I'm constantly sort of defending what we're teaching. You know, like why are we mm-hmm. learning this? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what is the purpose? Why Why are we learning this very old school type of four part writing? Like, what is the purpose of that? So I, I'm yeah. I'm. I, at, at that time in 2013, when I started teaching, I didn't have those kinds of answers. I'm just like, learn it. This is what Steve Late says. <laughs> so, just so you're like, talking about marketing. <laughs> <laughs> I know, exactly. exactly. Um, so I was working at Occidental and then I was also teaching at Pomona College uh, part time. And you know, over since 2000, maybe 15, 2014, 2015, I've been on the job market and the tenure track position, that coveted position just did not happen for me after, I don't know how many job applications, how many interviews in person on campus, Zoom interviews. Uh, Unfortunately, that didn't happen for me. And at some point I had to say, okay, um, how, how many more jobs I mean, how long am I going to stay in this game? You know, how, how, I mean, at some point I have to just kind of, I I really had to take that, all that rejection. I always tell people it's very, it's very true. I could wallpaper my bathroom with the rejection letters. I have so many of them, you know, and they all sound the same too. (laughs) Uh, Yes, there's got to be a template or something that we don't know about. Yeah, uh, they're just not very personable uh, Mm -hmm. after, you know, the hours that you put in to submit those applications and everything you do to research that school to see if you're the right fit. There Mm -hmm. were a couple, uh, there were a couple interviews that were, that I did that were cringy. If you ever do a podcast episode on like your worst interviews um half me on that show because <laughs> I, I have a few stories i could tell about you know some pretty yeah. cringy <laughs> cringy situations but anyway um so i really just had to take all of that rejection and redirect it to somewhere else and um being in la uh i just really wanted to get into film composition and um i just i think that actually think that had film composing had that sort of been modeled for me, if I was at a different school, perhaps if I was at USC or if I was at a different school that could model that, I think that I would have gone down that path. Um, but it wasn't what was modeled for me was the music professor, the academia, you know, all of, you know, doing research, going to conferences and that sort of thing. So that's what I, that's what I saw. And so that's the path that I followed and I really didn't question it, but I started to, um, I started to really want to do, uh, film composition 
And I ended up um, doing a business coaching session with a woman named Tess Taylor, who is uh, who is the president of the National Association of, of Record Industry Professionals. It's sort of a music. It's a music business um, where she. Uh, gathers music creators to pitch to music supervisors to get their music into film and TV and gaming and that sort of thing. So I really respect her as um, somebody in the industry. And so I paid a lot of money, money, money that probably I didn't have, but um, I just thought it was so important to have that coaching session and to get some advice. And sometimes that's what you have to do is you have to get a coach. That's one thing that I will say in entrepreneurship um, is that kind of investment in yourself. And when I had that meeting with her, um, I was talking, you know, I was talking about my, you know, what I wanted to do and how do I do it. And then at the very end, I said, Oh, by the way, um, I have this idea. I've just self published. I'm looking for a copy of it. Um, I've just self published this it's my music theory staff paper. And then the conversation completely stopped. She was silent and she was like, what is this? And she looked at it and she just suddenly got so excited. And she just said, okay, boom, boom, boom. This is what you need to do. She, she sent me to the NAM show. She said, talk to these people, say this, um, go after the patent for this, go after, like, don't tell anybody, don't pitch it. She was just telling me that I needed to go make some relationships, build some relationships. She said, go to Hal Leonard, go to Alfred music, go to all of these places and start building relationships. So that's what I did. I went to the, it was my first NAM show in, uh, 2018 and, um, I really, I really credit her a lot for that information because I went to Hal Leonard and I made friends. I wasn't trying to pitch them anything. All I did was make friends. And this is what is, is this is networking, right? This is what we tell students, go network with people. And it's not about like trying to pitch them every 10 minutes about your music, that your, your new release or whatever. Um, just make friends, be a person, be personable. Um, and so I connected with a few people at Hell Leonard. I was just chatting and, and, uh, I got their cards and I followed up like all the stuff you're supposed to do when you're networking. I followed up. I thanked them for their time. And when I was finally ready, when I had, um, secured copyright and when I had applied for, um, patent on the name and that sort of stuff, uh, I emailed, I emailed, um, the, uh, the guy that I made friends with and I pitched it and I just said, this is what I just created. I sent him all these pictures and the, and the drawings and, and, uh, just the preview of it, the proof of it. Um, and then I didn't hear anything for a few weeks and I just, and I didn't, I didn't follow up or anything because these things I know take time. And so I just kind of put it out there and just, a few weeks later, I would say like maybe three and a half weeks later, um, the vice president of Hal Leonard sent me an email and said they were interested. And so then it was just about negotiating from there. And I did, um, 
I did try to negotiate higher, like a higher royalty. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And then I was pretty, I was probably pretty unreasonable. Like I asked for, you know, money up front. Um, (laughs) I I don't know. And then, and then they all, and then he almost almost backed out of the deal. And I'm like, oh shoot. Okay. So then I had to like, just reassess everything. And so we, we did come to a happy medium and I do get, you know, I'm expecting a royalty check actually any day now, which is just really nice um, to to get that twice a year. But my um, my relationship with Hal Leonard, I just I feel like it's such a good match. All of the people there, they're all musicians. They're all working musicians in some way, which is a very good model for me to to validate that yes we need to be thinking of multiple income streams always always be thinking all the ways that you can make money as a musician um they're they're all very serious about their craft they're all very they're just wonderful to work with so i knew that this was that this product was going to be my entry point and yeah that's and that's where i'm at mm-hmm. like that product then started music theory shop, which is my business. And in uh, my business, I sell my anything that I publish. Um, but I also have a POD um, integration, which is a print on demand um, integration with my Shopify store. So I design like t-shirts and tote bags and stuff like that. And I get so much joy out of doing design. I think I've, I've always, always loved design. And I tell people all the time, just never, ever underestimate the power of design. Because if you can create something that solves a problem, it's beautiful, it's beautifully made, and it's super functional. That's what people want. And that's what people will use. So why would you buy this rather than like, the Hal Leonard big book of staff paper, you know, like that huge thing for like 10 bucks or something. Why would you spend the same amount of money and get just this? Um, well, because this is a little bit more functional, you know, because this is what my music theory students, that's what they need. I, everything that I create, it's solving a problem in, in my classroom. It's solving a problem for my students. So I would, I'd, I'd be teaching, I'd look out to my class, my audience, and I'd see them spread out. I, they'd have like a little piano, they'd have staff paper, they'd have a note paper bag, maybe a laptop, I don't know, but they just like were spread thin. Circle of fits here. Um, and so I just merged all of that together because I knew that's what they needed for the music theory classroom. So that's where all of my products come from. It just comes from trying to solve a problem. Uh, I, I don't think that I'm, um, you know, this like brilliant mastermind that came up with this because I know that there are music theory professors out there that create their own version of it. But what I did was, um, I, I hired a graphic designer to just make it look wonderful. And, um, I, I really invested a lot in the cover. I really wanted this to be, I really wanted it to be reminiscent of vintage sheet music. That's, I love, I have a whole collection of sheet music. I love my sheet music, my collection, my library. And I wanted it to sort of be reminiscent of 19th century, turn of the century um, sheet music, but kind of with modern colors. So 
that's what that's what I came up with. And I and I really think that it attracts a lot of people and it attracts people to like it it, tra- it it stimulates some curiosity like music theory what is that if you don't know what music theory is that might be interesting uh to somebody so it currently is available everywhere online um i was really excited to see it at the la phil store uh one of my when i took my students on a um on a field trip there, March 2020, right before the pandemic hit, my student said, oh, Malia, guess what I found in the LA Phil store? So I was stoked to see it in there. And that was just like such a good example yeah. for them. I, I felt like I really modeled entrepreneurship for them. Like this is, this could, if it could happen to me, it, it can, it, you know, you can definitely do it too. Um, so yeah, it's, every, it's right now, it's being considered at Urban Outfitters. And I pitched Urban Outfitters, and if you don't know that store, it's like a very, it's, it's a hip sort of a younger version of anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Their audience is mostly college students, and this is really meant for the college mm-hmm. classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I pitched them over the summer, and I haven't heard back. It's possible that they're, they're going to pass on it. Uh, it's pretty risky. I mean, <laughs> no, I, no, I mean, I, how many stores can you think of, you know, big box stores that have something that says music theory on it? Mm, you know, not, yes. very, not very many. So um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know yet uh, what they think about it, but um, we'll see. So, yeah, so that that's where I'm at. I'm uh, I'm building. That was not a short summary, you guys. <laughs> so good. I'm sort of like now go, going going into, you know, where I'm at. Well, we're done, actually. No, I love it. Yeah, there's nothing worse yeah. than uh, like your teaching class and your student is like drawing staff paper onto their notebook yes. paper yes. with a you know. But what yeah. I what I love about your notebook is that it's all right there. They can make a an annotation on the keyboard at the top. They can you know write their notes right there at the same time. They can point to staff paper and be like, "Hey, this is what we put on the board or whatever." I think that's great. Yeah, I think you say students, but I remember I myself have actually drawn very, like hundreds of little pianos (laughs) on the side of my notes, you know, and I find the time I want to write staff and then, oh no, I want to write a description of something below that, you know. I mean, don't count out the teachers as well. I think we all need this too. Everyone needs this. You know, I am... I mean, I don't need to to see a keyboard anymore. Obviously, Obviously, I'm a pianist, but I just, I like the graphic. I think it's yep. pretty. Mm-hmm. I yep. and, and when I'm using just plain staff paper, it's so plain. I just feel like I'm using something designer or something. I just really <laughs> like having that. I, I don't use it, but I just like the graphic of it. I I yeah. I, I think it I think it works really well. Um, by the way, uh, uh, I don't know. You guys should have Cynthia Gonzalez on your show. I love I love her so much. Just she, coming just soon. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. I yep. love her. Yes. Um, she did give me a comment. She she gave me some uh, a critique that she thought that the the staff was a little bit too wide. So maybe in a second edition, I'll be work playing with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but for right yeah. now, I think it's I think it's okay. I think it's it's doing it's doing okay. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I I love the your example that you're setting for mm-hmm. your students and 
And the fact that you're just you're out there and you're not worrying of should I do this? I'm gonna I'm gonna send to Urban Outfitters. I can see you know it working there. And mm-hmm. this um, this openness and desire to get your work out there. And so often I feel like in music theory and in the academia we kind of we limit ourselves on mm. you know our work and who would be receptive to it. And I agree that there is this, uh, the model of the kind of professor, the ivory tower is this model that many of us were kind of given. Mm-hmm. And for yep. most folks, uh, that's not the model that's possible. And we could, we could talk all day about how good or bad that is, uh, but that's kind of the reality of it. And for those who even have a tenure track job or something like that, you know, we look around and we can see universities closing, you know, Ithaca College firing a bunch of music faculty. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So even the sense of permanence, like if you even if you if you are the one in hundreds or a thousand that gets that brass ring, that brass ring can get taken from you right away. And so your encouragement to look for other avenues outside of just the very very narrow image that we're or vision that we're given, I think is really valuable advice. Yeah. uh, uh, Just because somebody is in that, that position of, you know, having a tenure track job or being tenured, um, it doesn't mean that they're hundred percent happy. It doesn't, it, Mm -hmm. you know, once, the stress never leaves you, <laughs> you know, it's just like, I tell my students yes. this all the time. I know you guys have a lot to do, but guess what? <laughs> this will happen for the, this will follow you for the rest of your life. Um, but I find that even, even full-time professors, um, even they might not, you know, be completely like a hundred percent happy in their positions. And I just think that having something on the side is always so wonderful. And especially now, I mean, I really think that what happened with the pandemic and going online, and I just think it's going to change education, higher education forever. I think that it's going to impact a lot of what we do. And I don't think, um, like Paul said, I, I don't think any of us are safe. I think that, um, I think that the best thing that we can do is start to think about other ways to bring in revenue and not just be reliant on the university system because it, it feels stable. It does feel stable, but it's not stable. We like, we shouldn't kid ourselves that it's stable. The enrollments are going down everywhere, even at Harvard, you know, they are going down. So, um, yeah, I think that that is something that a lot of us don't want to look at and don't want to mm-hmm. face when we've worked so hard to get where we're at. I was in school for 17 years. It took me nine years to do my doctor. I worked so hard to get mm-hmm. to this position. And um, I think, you know, not being able to get the tenure track job was so disappointing just because I worked so hard. We're sort of in American culture thought, you know, just work hard be a hard worker, you know, Mm -hmm. and stay with it. And you'll be able to, you know, get that house, you know, (laughs) or or whatever it is, you know, the American dream. Um, And so if it doesn't, if it doesn't happen, it's, it's very, very disappointing. Um, But if we can just 
sort of be very real to our students now moving Mm -hmm. forward, I think that that would serve them so much better. Never once as an undergrad or graduate school did any of my professors say anything about um, how to make a living. Nobody Mm -hmm. talked about music career. Nobody talked about music career. They just talked about, uh, I'm, I'm happy to write you a letter of rec, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, just making the assumption that we're going down the academia path. Mm-hmm. And it's just not, it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. And I, I think that it's, I think it, I think that we do a disservice. It's not, I think we just need to be more realistic in this day and age. Maybe it was different in the eighties, nineties, maybe early two thousands, but you know, mm-hmm. later two thousands, no, things really started to shift. And now it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's so, the market is so saturated with us. <laughs> we're at, we're everywhere. Yeah. Uh, every, there's, there's so many music theorists, PhDs. I mean, 20 mm-hmm. years ago, that would not be the case, but that is the case now. Um, if you want to teach at a community college, you must have a PhD. They're not taking yeah. people mm-hmm. with master's degrees anymore. That's not the case anymore. Um, you want to teach in higher ed anywhere, you have to have that PhD. And then the jobs for, you know, there's 200 what applicants and there are three jobs, you know? So yeah, I think that, I think that as, as much as we can tell our students, um, here are ways that you can make money in music. There are a lot of ways to make money in music. I think that academia is one way. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. And on a related note, I would add that the way it sounds like, and please correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, it sounds like your entrepreneurship still stems from this genuine care for your students and an interest in helping them succeed. Like without those things, you don't come up with music theory, staff paper, you don't come up with, you know, visualized keyboard scales and modes. Like those things are genuinely created out of a desire to help other people learn and like solving, like you said, a very real problem. So it's not like you could just, you know, say one day, okay, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And then like all of a sudden here comes all this money. It's like, you have to be really invested in other people. You have to build relationships with people. You have to be creative. You have to be able to survive, um, in tough environments and overcome challenges. Um, which is really, I mean, your story is so inspiring in so many different ways, but that's, that's one thing that stuck out to me at least. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I would add that it, in going, I, I think anybody that is an educator, there is a high level of empathy already built into that person because those are the, if you're in education, it's all about serving, it's all about service, and it's all about helping others. So I think that going into entrepreneurship is very natural Uh I don't want to say transition. It's an addition to what I'm, I'm currently right. doing, but, um, no matter what we create, what we do, it's, it's always with this very high sense of empathy. Uh, Seth Godin calls it, um, radical empathy. If you can have that radical empathy for that other person and really help them solve their problem, you will never have to sell anything. It's not about, I don't, I don't, um, 
you know, well, maybe I do make some hard pitches <laughs> at <laughs> sometimes. Um, Calling you Urban Outfitters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, but it's it's really about, I, I, I think that if you have something that serves and helps other people, it, it sells itself. Yeah. And by the way, before I got published with Hal Leonard, um, I... I reached out to as many music theorists as I knew. I had no shame I, and I wasn't like getting into this space was at first I was a little I was a little self-conscious because this is not rigorous research. This is not I'm not trying to publish in um, perspectives. I'm not like I'm not trying to publish in music theory online or any of these journals. I'm creating a product, you know, commodity. And so I did have a sense of, are people going to judge me for that? And then, I mean, that did cross my, that I did have those feelings for a little while and they went away pretty quick because, um, I started to think, um, first of all, nobody's in my position. People aren't in LA hustling like I am. Uh, when you're in LA, um, it, it's, it's different. It, it is, it is a tougher city to survive in. And so, um, you have to, you have to just do a lot. You have to have a lot of grit and a lot of, um, hustling and just get your stuff out there. And you have to be a, you have to be able to promote yourself and you don't have to do it in a slimy way. You can do it in a way that's just like, I have this thing and I think it'll help you. So I remember before I published with Hal Leonard, um, I got rejected. Um, you know, who, uh, who loved it right away was University of Utah. Um, Michael, uh, I, I can't remember his last name. This is horrible. But um, Michael at um, University of Utah, they, he wanted it. He put in a huge order. Um, and then I was able to get it out to also my alma mater, Saddleback College in um, Orange County. And this is where I tell my students, um, no matter what, you treat people with respect. Always, always, always develop those relationships because you never, ever know when somebody can help your career down the road. They can help you out in some way. Um, so my first music theory professor, they put in a big order and that was really, really helpful. And I needed all that because before I pitched to Hal Leonard, I had to show proof of concept. You have to do that. You know, they might be able to see your proof of concept. They might be able to look at it. I think most musicians who look at it, they get it right away. They're like, oh, I wish I had this in music school. Um, they get it, but I really wanted to have that data there to say these schools, um, have, um, have picked it up and have adopted it. So, um, yeah. And that having that process, knowing to do that, I didn't know, this is all stuff I had to learn, um, about entrepreneurship that you have this idea, then you need to prove it. You need to have social proof. You need to have some kind of data that shows that people want your product and then you can move ahead and then pitch it to bigger, bigger places, bigger companies. Um, I'm thinking about trying to pitch it to Costco. I mean, I would love to see it at a big box place. You know, I want it. I want it like I it, it's not just about let's just try to, you know, get it in as many stores as possible. I it, I what I like about it is it says music theory on it. I want people that um 
they know what musicians know what we do as musicians, but but will be so curious about wow, what is music theory? What is that? Mm-hmm. You know, and be intrigued by mm-hmm. it. So the the more places I can get that, you know, get this notebook in, the better. Yeah, that's really great. I know one of the ways that you build relationships is through your social media. And that's sort of how we found you because you gave a presentation on your social media and how you use it, you know, um, especially in the last insane year and a half that we've all had with the pandemic to stay connected to your students and to other people. So can you talk a little bit about how you've built your channels and, you know, how you work on that? Sure. Um, and some of this has just been through experimentation. So, uh, they say in business, you want to be on as many platforms as possible. And when you're a solopreneur, um, that's just, it's so impossible. It's just so hard to spread yourself thin and just to be on every single platform. So it's really good to try to choose, choose one, choose one that you feel really comfortable with and that you can show up as often as possible. So I've chosen Instagram because it's the one that's the most visual. It's, um, there's a lot of people, there's billions of people using that platform. So I feel like Um, Instagram is also documenting my process. So it's also kind of just for my own personal, um, history that I can look back and say, Oh, a year ago, this is where I was at. It's neat to see. It's neat for me to see Mm -hmm. that kind of progress. Um, I don't think Instagram is a, is a good teaching platform. So I know that some people do IGTV and they like do little lessons and tutorials and stuff. I have not had mine perform very well. So I I think YouTube is really the place to do that. If you want to teach, if you want to do theory tutorials, teach music, teach music analysis, um, YouTube is really the place to do something like that. Um, Instagram is more like of highlight, your highlight reel. Um, I do highlights and lowlights because <laughs> like, I'm not afraid. I, I'm not afraid to like talk about my rejections and, and negative things that have happened to me too, because it's all part of that journey. And I just think it's more real. Um, I did try TikTok, but I didn't understand how that worked. So, uh, and I don't, and I'm not going to dance. I downloaded it on my phone and then I have never opened it. Yeah. Um, You know, TikTok is all about insider jokes and, and repurposing what other people have done with music. And so I didn't really get that joke. Um, but it, it, it works very well in business. I think, um, I think, it's, uh, you know, Instagram reels is pretty much like TikTok. So I'm kind of starting to delve into that a little bit more. And I just, I, uh, I know that right now the Instagram, um, algorithm is highlighting reels more because it's a, it's a relatively new feature. It's mm. not, it's not brand new, but it's relatively new. And so right now, if you want to get the most exposure you need to make reels. And I can't think of a better thing. I mean, it's, I could put music to it. So I can't think of a better way to sort of promote what I'm doing. I did an experiment though, um, where I was creating, I created a reel and I did it. I did like the solfege thing, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was doing the solfege, the Kadai hands, hand symbols. And, um, I, I made a reel of that and I used a trending song. I can't remember what song I used, but I used a trending song. And, um, in the first hour I got 
1200 views. And that's a lot for me. And then within a couple hours, I had 3000 views. And that's really a lot for a music theorist. I mean, not very many people are not very many people are interested in, in uh, the lifestyle of a music theorist. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I, I found that interesting. And then I've made reels with Vivaldi. And it didn't perform as well. I will say <laughs> the Vivaldi didn't didn't go as well. Um, and then I, I've made reels um, without my face, where it's just music notation or something like that, and those also didn't perform well. So what Instagram really likes are faces, human faces, that kind of some kind of physical um, movement, and the trending songs. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else can I say about that? I'm, I'm also, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. Um, Twitter, I, I don't do a lot on, I go there to read, um, Robert, what's his oh, last yeah. name? Yeah. Komenyaki. Komenyaki. Yeah. Yes. I, I He's only, hilarious. I only go to Twitter for Robert. Seriously. That's the only reason I go to Twitter. Um, gosh, I wish I was, I wish I was funny like him. He's just, I bet his students just love him. I mean, he yeah. is so funny. And, and if anybody listening does not know what I'm talking about, just do a search. I mean, yeah. he's he's got a lot of followers. It's because he's he he's just he's very clever. He's very clever mm-hmm. in what he says. I think he's always he's always spot on. He's also very humble too, and um, and is willing to um, make changes or address criticism in a very professional way that we can all look at for as as a model so um i'm all about going to twitter just to see what what robert has to say for the day um and on facebook i facebook is mostly personal so i'm not really doing a lot of business stuff my facebook music theory shop page is linked to my instagram so it's kind of a lazy way to just throw that content onto facebook but I think it's good that I do that. I know that when I was researching for music theory staff paper to see if there was anything else in the world like it, um, I did come across somebody that was doing something kind of similar and their Facebook page was pretty disappointing. It made, and they didn't have any social media and it made me think that mm. that person wasn't really Mm. serious about this. Mm. Um, I think that if you're trying to do anything in business, um, I think that social media is very important to have, to have that digital footprint. You know, it's good to have a a web, a web page website. Um, but I think that nowadays people want to get to know you. Um, before, I mean, think about anything that you've bought recently. Um, there are usually so many options for everything nowadays. You know, any kind of customer, you know, as a consumer, anything that you buy, there's a million options now. We have Amazon. You can get so many. But what makes you buy something? Um, well, if there's a lot of reviews on something, usually. So that's like the social proof. But it's also, if you know who that person is, if you if you get to know who the creator is of that, um, that is that is huge. So I think it's as as uncomfortable as it can be for an introvert like myself. It is crucial that people like me and other introverts 
put themselves out there in a way that's still comfortable, not uncomfortable. Like I'm not going to do, you know, <laughs> dances. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You know, I will show. That's why I, you'll never be big on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I guess I'm okay with that. You know, um, I yeah. think that, I think that that personable, like being personable, being approachable, it's exactly what we do as music professors. We want our students mm-hmm. to come to us, right? We want, mm-hmm. we want, we want them, we want to give them so many different ways to communicate with us and to come to us for help. And so anything that you can do, I, oh, I should add, um, I rebranded my office hours. And so this is sort of a, a test to see if this is going to work. And I'll, I guess I'll let you guys know, we can do a follow up, but, um, <laughs> I don't know about you, but nobody comes to my office hours. Um, they're pretty much, you know, crickets and I just do my work and I'm kind of fine with it. I'm like, I have a lot of stuff to do. <laughs> I'm just like, great. you know, so it's, much it's yeah. fine. It's fine. But this time, and I, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm doing, um, a hybrid course. My courses are hybrid where I'm on zoom Mondays and then I'm in person on Wednesdays. And so I really feel like, the more accessible that I can make myself, the more my students will want to come and see me. So I called, I just rebranded, I renamed my office hours to Music Mentorship with Malia. And I told my students, I made a whole long list. These are the topics. Come and talk to me about um, career, about getting music in film and TV and gaming. Um, Come to me with homework questions. Sure, that's fine. Uh, come, come to me, um, for entrepreneurship advice, you know, come to me about publishing. I know a ton about, I have expertise in all these film, all these, uh, different categories come to me about skincare. I know a lot about skincare, <laughs> you know? So I would have um, loved that in undergrad. Let me yeah, just say. <laughs> totally. So we'll see. Um, I think you guys, you guys all know the first week of school was pretty rough for me. I fell at school and I sprained my ankle really bad. So I haven't been able to hold any music mentorship hours, um, yet. So I'm, I, am i am hoping though it's going to go well. I'm hoping that I'll get people coming to chat. Absolutely. That's a great idea because it's just, it's changing, it's reframing it. Right. And yeah, you want to be mentored. Like that's something that I think a lot of students are longing for. And they're often just afraid or intimidated um, to go to go into our offices, even if the doors open. Certainly, if it's closed, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to knock, right? And so, but you're offering this mentorship, like I want to be a part of what uh, you're doing and help you succeed. I think that's wonderful because it's putting, it's inviting them. It's like, okay, I'm going to get something out of this. Like you, you believe in me, and uh, I want to do it. Right, right. I think anything that we can do to just get them in the door, um, mm-hmm. the better. And, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know about you all, but I communicate with my students in Slack. I have this, this semester, I'm trying something different. I normally would have a workspace for all of, for each different class. And this time I decided to put everybody under one house and just to do one big Slack workspace for all of my, my music theory students at different levels, because I thought that this would give a chance for the, um, the upperclassmen to the, up, the, the more advanced theory classes 
to mentor and help mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. you know, the more beginning level, the level one, the theory one class. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, it's giving them sort of experience already with teaching. Um, mm-hmm. Teaching is you know, obviously that's one of my, um, income streams. I think that, um, all of my students, our student profile, all of our students go into some kind of teaching. So I always, I try to, I try to teach pedagogy. Um, when I'm teaching students something, I tend to point out, you guys notice, notice how I presented this technique to you. You know, when it comes to oral skills, notice that we're doing this pitch mapping exercise and how I laid this out and how we're starting with one, three, five, the stable scale degrees. This is what I'm not throwing it all at you at once because then you'd hate it. Okay. I'm just going to have you tr- just try to hear the tonic. Just try to hear dummy. So, and you're golden. If you can hear that, if you can burn that into your head, you know, this is the Karpinski method, right? Um, if you can burn it into your head, then um, you're going to be fine. But until you can really hear 135, you won't be able to hear anything else. So mm-hmm. I try to teach how to teach while I'm teaching yeah. <laughs> as much as possible. And I, I never got that. I don't know about you all, but in my PhD program, um, I, was, I was in music theory. You know, we we're in music theory where we just get sort of on-the-job training as TAs or as mm-hmm. graduate um you know, leaders, what's it called? Uh, I don't know. I actually taught a class. I forget what that's called, but instructor of record. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I never took any pedagog- pedagogy classes until I went to the um, the music theory workshops in pedagogy have mm-hmm. changed my life. And yeah. I just recommend those um, so much. Uh, I got, you know, where I got to work with um, uh, I, I got to work with, um, Beth Marvin, Elizabeth Marvin, Marvin. I got Mm -hmm. to, I got to work with her. I got to work with Cynthia Gonzalez, Lee Van Handel. I got to work with Mm -hmm. Joe Strauss, um, Steve Lates. I mean, Gary Karpinski, of course, all these amazing, amazing people that I really, really look up to. So, um, yeah, I highly, highly recommend that. I went, I've been twice now. And, um, I was able to get my university, even though I'm, I'm contingent faculty, I'm a, I'm a lecturer. I, I still was able to get my university to pay for all that. So that's something that I would say to all adjunct faculty that still be applying for, um, be applying for faculty development as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Mm -hmm. I would definitely, uh, go to are those pedagogy workshops. They're so fun. And, mm-hmm. um, again, I look at it as networking because I wouldn't have sent my music theory staff paper to all those people, you know, but I ended up doing that mm-hmm. because I, because I knew that, cause I had a personal relationship with them. So right. that's a good, and of course, you know, conferences are good networking opportunities. I also, I'm a reader for AP music theory. So I do that. I've gig. done that too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. I, it I love is. it. I did it uh, for the first time um, two years ago, and the first time it was in person, and that's where I got to got, got to know people like Cynthia Gonzalez, mm-hmm. you know, um, and Lee, and it was just so that was such an amazing experience, and the 
now we're at virtual for the past two years, it's been virtual mm-hmm. and, um, it's just not the same. It's, it's definitely, mm-hmm. I feel bad for the people that are just now doing it because the experience in person, there's just nothing that can replicate that to be in exactly. um, this huge room of like over a hundred people of, of your people of music mm-hmm. theorists, like your people, there is, Oh, there's nothing like it. <laughs> it's just so fun. It's great. It really is. And you you make so many connections. That's how I know a lot of the people that um, were early guests on Note Doctors are because like Gina is a great example. We we met and really connected. Gina, I met at one of those pedagogy workshops. Um, mm-hmm. The one I think that was at Eastman. And she's the one that recommended that I do the AP music theory. And, uh, yeah, so I did. So I was because of Gina root and yeah. I love the Gina root philosophy. Cause I do the oral skills, um, for AP music theory and Gina root says, if let it like, let give them a pass if you can write it down. So we're always agonizing over, Oh my gosh, did they really hit the pitch? Right. You know, but if you write, if you notate it down um, and it's correct, then we'll give it to them. So that's something that's a very good tip from uh, Gina. Yeah. So if you're teaching oral skills, um, it's a little different when you, when it's in person and it's going by so fast. We get to mm-hmm. listen to a recording and mm-hmm. just really um, check every single detail of the pitch. But um, we can agonize for like 15 minutes on one. And so she's just like, if you can write it down, just let it go. Just give it to them. <laughs> that's probably probably good advice for grading sight singing in general for sure for i teach oral skill i teach music theory and oral skills and now i'm teaching um i'm teaching composition which is uh it, it it's concurrent with my my what what would probably be a theory three class it's on chromaticism we get up to form we do get up to sonata form but we start off at applied chords uh and and modal mixture and that sort of stuff um and then i have them write a string quartet at uh the very end so we're also studying um repertoire and instrumentation orchestration Mm -hmm. and this kind of stuff but i was going to say with my oral skills um my students love the error detection exercises that I do. I don't know if you guys do this, but if you teach oral skills, you have to do this exercise. It's me singing and I purposely (laughs) make mistakes and uh-huh. the, and they just love saying, "Oh, Professor Roberson, um, you didn't hit the right note in measure two. Like they love saying all that. <laughs> they so do. They just uh-huh. love it. And so I, I do say, it too. And I make them give me a grade based on yeah, like exactly. how many notes I sang wrong and stuff. And I I do things that they often do. So at the yeah. end of one of them, I do something like do 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 yeah. do <laughs> something like that. It's so, uh, so, yeah, they love coming they into love being that. though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is such a good exercise. I learned that from one of the pedagogy workshops, but the error detection is, but what, but when we do it, it's when we, when our, when we do what they have to do, it makes it extra fun, extra special for mm-hmm. them because yeah. it, it's because we see them, we know it, we've been through it. Mm-hmm. And so 
um, I think that's that's why they enjoy it so much. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's great. We are, we are humans as well, as well. Uh-huh. and uh, uh, we can make mistakes, make mistakes, and that's okay. Well, this time has just flown by. This has been such a wonderful conversation, Malia. I believe we've learned so much. Uh, but before we uh, wrap up, we do like to uh, ask a couple, uh, some rapid-fire questions. Mm-hmm. All right, so these are questions that we have not planned. Um, and so this is where you can uh, give your uh, Twitter soundbite. And um, <laughs> so Ben or Jen, do either of you have one? I'll go for one. Okay. Number one thing that's changed in music theory teaching as a result of the pandemic. Well, obviously moving online and having to, I think we all need iPads and Apple pencils in order to do those. Ex- I mean, unless you have a whiteboard behind you or doing it, I think the tech, the tech has really changed. I think the, the pandemic has really forced us to learn the tech. I have been scared of the tech um, to be able to teach online, <laughs> but um, I'm glad I did it because I'm implementing this in my business. I'm going to be doing this. I'm packaging what I do at the university and packaging it for the world in a slightly different way. But in order to do that, in order to offer digital courses, um, you have to know that tech. So at some point I had to learn it and this just kicked my butt to force me to learn all of it. And sometimes I do get a little bit intimidated and frustrated with the tech when something doesn't work. Um, but overall I'm starting to feel so much more comfortable. So I really think that the, the technology part of it has changed a lot, has changed forever. That's good. I'm going to play this recording for my Dean next week when we go back to class. (laughs) (laughs) Good justification. I need an iPad and an Apple pencil. You do. I like how you said add Apple pencil. That's perfect. Yes. We do. You do do because, because think about it. We teach handwritten music notation. Mm-hmm. That is part of what we're teaching here. Yeah. Yes, we're teaching Sibelius and Finale. They need to learn a music notation program, obviously, yes. for professional music engraving. You have to do that. But um, they're not using that to um, turn in their homework. Everything, we're really, we're still teaching this I don't know. It's not a lost art, but it's definitely an art form that's not as uh, big as it was in Beethoven's day, (laughs) you know, this handwritten (laughs) notation. And I tell my students all the time, I think it's art. I really encourage them to do stuff like that, to still handwrite. Um, So it's important that we are teaching that. And you can only do that in a tech sense. You can only do that with, you know, that gear. So you need it. Mm -hmm. I think, all music theory, most of the music theorists I talk to have it. I mean, they're all teaching um, with Apple Pencil and um, they're mirroring their screen with the iPad. And they are, there's, you know, there's tons of staff paper. There's apps, um, music staff mm-hmm. paper apps. I use my music theory staff paper, which nobody, only I have access to that. But um, <laughs> I use that. Um, and like if you have an app like GoodNotes, there's a staff paper there for it but yeah definitely ben that get get that if you don't have that you need that (laughs) yes absolutely very good well paul do you want to go or do you want me to go i'll go sure all right so my question is what is your favorite theory topic to teach oh 
Oh my gosh. Paul. <laughs> I know there's so many, right? Um, about I can I can tell like, you my favorite just, yeah, I can tell, tell you my favorite class. My favorite class is what I'm teaching this semester. It's like a theory three it's when we get into chromaticism. I start getting really excited when we start talking about the pivot chord method and modulation. I start to get even more excited when we get into mixture, modal mixture. Uh, and then we get to my favorite chord of all time, the Neapolitan. Um, and then we get into augmented six chords. I mean, and then chromatic modulation. So I'm sorry, Paul, I can't give you like one topic. It's like that, that, you know, month long or six weeks of those mm -hmm. topics probably excite me the most. And I think my yeah. students can feel that. And mm -hmm. I do bring in a lot of piano repertoire. That's my specialty. And I tell them right away, I, I give them playlists. Like you can go listen to this and this and this other kinds of genres. But, um, you know, maybe this is something we can talk about um, in another podcast. I know that there's a lot of a lot of move towards like, let's bring in music by female composers, people of color. Mm -hmm. I've listened to your shorts, your summer shorts, which mm -hmm. are all really, really good. Um, I'm not doing mm -hmm. that as much. I'm doing, I'm bringing in repertoire. That's my specialty that I know. And my specialty is from the canon. It's Chopin, mm -hmm. it's Beethoven, it's Bach. And I'm still bringing in that. And I know that, um, Joe and Poundy added, I use the concise, um, mm -hmm. theory text. It's so good. I think it's, I think it's very, very well done. Um, I know that they have changed and brought in some more representative musical examples, which is great. So I also, so I kind of rely on that. Um, but I'm mostly still sticking with what I know. And as much as, um, I might get criticism for that. Like why, you know, you can find musical examples by women that include the Neapolitan, you know, you can talk about other genres other than, um, Chopin, um, you know, Nocturnes and the Waldstein and the Passionata. Um, that would, that would take, a, I mean, that, I feel like that's going to take a lot of my time when I already have a lot of this already mapped out. And I think that, before anybody criticizes anybody else for not doing that, they should have a little empathy about where these people are in their careers, um, mm -hmm. how we're already making a meager existence, a meager existence. Um, right. The Starbucks manager makes more than me when it comes to my university position. So um, I think that to be able to totally change curriculum and add, you know, add, you know, not totally change curriculum, but to add, um, all kinds of stuff to courses that you've taught for years. Um, I think that that's going to be for somebody that's in a more privileged position. Not all of us have the time to do all of that when we are hustling to do other things. So that kind of went, I kind of went off right there. On, uh, <laughs> no, but you're I, so right. You're so right. And we both, you know, or all of us have worked, um, all three of us have worked as, as adjunct professors as well. Um, some of us at institutions that we now, you know, I was an adjunct here at DBU before I started here full time. And um, 
but you're you're totally right. I mean, there is an element of having sort of the time or the space. And in my case, I've been teaching overloads for a long time, so I often face that same that same question of like, oh, do I take the time to dig in and do this, you know, and so it is helpful. That's one of the reasons we wanted to do the summer shorts, because it gives all of us, you know, a few more examples in the mix where we can be like, I know that is it there. And I can just go straight to that thing and be like, I'll play this one because that's in there, you know, so. And I do like how there are, um, there are groups that are doing that. There are, um, there's a Facebook group doing that. I forget what, but um, yeah, you can find now there's a whole website on musical examples by women. And I link mm-hmm. to a lot of that stuff in my website um, as well, those kinds of resources. And I do think they're important. I know that for my own teaching and for my own I know my students very well mm-hmm. and I, I know what they need. I know how to serve them. And so I can't, I'm, I'm limited about what I can bring in um, because I'm already expecting so, so much. Totally fair. Totally fair. All right. So um, I'm tapping into your pianist self now. When I like need a brain break, I go to the piano and I have a couple go to pieces that I sit down. I just kind of play a little bit. What is your go to piano piece that you've been using lately? Just for fun, just to play for fun. It's the Chopin etude in E major. It's usually it's usually just whatever is on my piano stand. So, uh, it's whatever I happen to have, um, open, I will admit this right now. My music library is massive and it's not organized and it's not organized by composer and it's not organized by historical era. So I'm screwed. Like if I'm trying to find something, um, (laughs) good luck. The only way I can identify something is if I know the binder. And I think you guys all know, like I know almost all of my, I I know what my Mozart sonatas look like. I know, Mm -hmm. I know what my Schumann books look like. I know what Dover and Henley's look like. Mm. So I know what I'm looking for. Um, but yeah, I need to, or- so I guess this is to say like whatever I happen to have, like right now I have Mazorksky pictures at an exhibition. Nice, so I've been great like, piece, reading, yeah. reading through some vintage sheet music. Um, but I've been also playing um, the chromatic fantasy and fugue, uh, the mm. Bach. So not, mm. not so much the fantasy, mostly the fugue. I think that the fugue is meditative. Um, mm. I think fugues are meditative. Um, I think that they're, well, that's all, that's all relative because playing a fugue is hard. <laughs> it's probably Super hard. Not yeah. It requires a lot of focus. It's probably not meditative <laughs> to many people. Right, this one's right. meditative to me because I performed this piece. So if you're reading through a fugue that you've played, that can be meditative. If you're learning a fugue, it most definitely is not meditative. Yeah. If, if, if anything, it's the opposite <laughs> yeah for me it's like when you need all your mental yeah facilities. for me it's like when you're a little kid and you're trying to figure out how to pat your head and rub your tummy right that's a fugue for me like trying to get my hands to do different things at the same time no thank you it's so hard but one thing i am <laughs> so trying to do to though i'm trying to i'm teaching myself a little bit of jazz and a little bit of like um you know, just like six, two, five, one progression mm-hmm. and then i'm just trying to take that and um sequence it um, and just do some, just play around with that. So sometimes mm-hmm. I, uh, force myself to do some improv improvisation is not something I studied in my classical training. 
It is something I wish that I had uh, learned. I wish I had studied jazz. I wish that I enjoyed improvisation as much as I enjoy sight reading. I would so much rather read somebody else's music than to just to mess around and fool around on the, on the piano. Um, but, but it's growing on me. I'm kind of forcing myself to do it. I think our students need that. I think that in uh, music theory training, we need to get them to improvise and use these materials and techniques right away in their instrument. So then they can be able to identify it in their repertoire. We need to get them playing as much as possible. So that means I have to do it. <laughs> yeah, we have to model the musicianship that we want the students to see and to do. Well, and you know, the 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 PhD is not about being the smartest person in the room. It really is not. The PhD is really about having questions constant questions. We're lifelong learners. We just learn how to find those answers. The PhD teaches you how to find any answer that you want and be able to find it and research it on a deeper uh, level past the Google search. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. And be able to write about it. And to be able to write about it and be yeah. able to cite everybody that came before you. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's great. So as we wrap up, uh, tell us a little bit about what you have cooking. I'm sure you have some things cooking. Uh, we didn't even really get a chance to talk about your visualized keyboard scales and modes book, but uh, tell us, can you can tell the listeners kind of some things that you have uh, on the way and again, where we can find you um, on the internet. Sure. Um, this summer I did a lot of self-publishing. So that's something that I've been publishing with Amazon KDP. It is very it's, it's easy to do. Um, I think every musician, I think every music teacher should do this. I think that, um, I think that if you have a music studio of students and you keep teaching the same lesson over and over and over, you should package that into a book. It's not hard. You don't have to try to get Norton or Oxford to publish for you. You can do it yourself. These days we have the tools to do that. So I've been doing a lot of self-publishing and, I think I published about a dozen books this uh, this summer. It was so fun. Some of them are like low content. I did a coloring book. Like I do some fun stuff. I do some journals and notebooks, but I also did a couple music theory books. Um, I did a kind of a one sheet music theory book called um, Home Sweet Tonic, play off of the word home sweet home because mm -hmm. we call the tonic the home base. So I created um, home, uh, two books in the Home Sweet Tonic series. One is kind of a one-sheet study sheet, and then the, a second one is a workbook. And this is going to go in, um, in tandem with the music theory workshop that I'm creating um, outside of the university. This is for music theory shop. And it's, um, it's, it's going to be, it's music fundamentals basically. And I'm, I'm creating a series of modular music theory workshops because people, people have so many different experiences in music, what they bring to, you know, to the table. And so when they really want to get down to study music theory, um, you often want to fill in those holes. You want to give them an, the option to study at different levels. But what I'm finding is people really want music fundamentals. People still really just want the basics. They want to know how to write chord symbols. They want, they want to know how functional harmony works. So those are the types of workshops that um, eventually are going to 
sort of rule my business. My business will mostly be about those. And I think that, um, I think they're going to help a lot of people, um, access world-class education, those that don't have the access. But I also, I have this bigger vision to be able to create these workshops in a way that will help adjuncts, people like me actually make some money off the side. So in, in, a, in, in an affiliate type of program to have music teachers actually bring their students on and then they can actually make some money too. So I know that like talking about money, people don't like to talk about money. I love talking about money. I think we should talk about it more, but that's, that's the big thing that's in the pipeline. So it, trying to launch those, I've had two failed launches. Uh, I tried to do it a couple of years ago and then I tried to do it again a year and a half ago. And so now that, um, again, the pandemic, knowing my tech and everything that I've studied about how to run asynchronous courses online, like everything that everybody is doing now, it can be packaged. Um, I'm not the only one that knows music fundamentals. All, all of your listeners here know music fundamentals. They can be doing the same thing. Um, I say that now I'll probably have competition out there. <laughs> but, um, into existence. Yeah, but uh, anybody really can do it. And it's just about um, knowing your knowing your audience, knowing how to pack, knowing what your audience really needs and packaging it in a way that's going to make them be excited about it. I tell people all the time, I sort of sell the celery juice of music. Um, like it's, it's really healthy for you, but God, it like, it tastes awful. Um, it's like, it, it does wonders for the body, but man, it's really hard going down. Um, so, but, but at the same time, like celery juice is so popular right now. Everybody's, you know, taking it. Right. So it's possible. We live in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> we, we eat brisket and drink barbecue sauce. I mean, I don't know what you folks in LA are doing. Fried chicken. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So music theory can, is kind of a hard sell. Uh, so I have my work cut out for me, but I'm really mm-hmm. trying everything that I create. It is about the repackaging of it. I really am trying to rebrand it in a way mm-hmm. that makes you know, like this is your typical theory book. This is Van Antorn's, you know, Igor, Str- Igor Stravinsky book he wrote in the 80s. I mean, look at it. It's black. It's like solemn. There's Stravinsky there in the shadows. <laughs> it looks like uh, George Crumb's then, black like, is, angel should be. Peter's latest book. You know, his latest book is so cute. You know, and this is for this is for a general public. Um, there's a caricature. It this looks yeah. this looks so mm-hmm. 1920s. And then orange, mm-hmm. like that's a very good color in marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is orange is about making you salivate. So, I mean, I don't know if that's happening, but like, this is very exciting. Um, so just like the difference in how you package something and like, look at the thickness of it, like accessible or not accessible. So, and I'm, I'm holding up for the listeners that you all know, if you've read Peter's book, like this is an inch and a half thick. (laughs) And then this one is maybe half an inch thick. His new one, simply Stravinsky. And by the way, he did an, ebook version of this and I did the piano for it. So I did all of oh, the, nice. I played piano, um, for all the recordings of this. I, it was so fun. I felt like a rock star going to the recording studio and then like playing the firebird and, and snippets of, uh, the right. It was just super fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. 
That's great. Well, thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. And I think you have you provide a wonderful example and a model that we can all take a little bit of, of how we can take what we do and bring it to a, a wider, wider market, wider audience and not uh, and getting outside of our bubble. So oftentimes uh, we, we kind of go into theory or uh, kind of doing it for ourselves. Right. I'm just going to analyze this paper or analyze this piece and. And and you don't think of anything beyond that, like, oh, maybe I could put in an article, but that's, you know, behind a firewall. So that's not for the public at all. Right. And um, I think you provide this wonderful way of thinking about our work. Uh, and it's important. And it's yeah, important uh, work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people need it. I, I mm-hmm. think that what we provide is is a way for people to create art in their best form. Let me try to say that again. Um, we give them the skills to, and the techniques to produce the best art possible. Like we want to pull out the best art possible because that's what the world needs, right? The world needs really good music, really good art right now. And if we can help them do that, and create that art, then we've done our job. So I think that what we do is really, really crucial. I should never underestimate it and just think that it's only for a select few. It's, it's not. People can learn a lot from it. And if we can just remind our students why we're doing sort of this old school types of, uh, you know, counterpoint and voice leading, you know, why do you have to learn that? If you can connect that to Well, you're doing this because you start to learn about form. You start to learn about the process of layering. It helps you in performance. If we can relate it to um, working in a DAW and how you have to, when you work in a digital audio workstation, you have to understand layers. You have to understand instrumentation and how you group things together. It is all related. And it's not like you're going to write music where, okay, I have to resolve all my chordal sevens down. No, but you'll have the, um, well, in my class, you will, <laughs> but, but, you know, you won't have to do that forever. But the thing is, it's not about knowing that so-called that rules. Well, it's not so-called it is, it's a principle, right? Um, but it's that you have the choice now to create the effects that you want in your music. So it's not about you're in my class and you're just learning a whole bunch of rules. I think that's a very superficial way of looking at what we do. We need to tell them that it's not, these aren't rules. These are principles. And I take that from Cynthia Gonzalez, who says it's not, it's not a bunch of rules. These are principles. This is what happens in the major minor tonal system, the Western major minor tonal system. And you can choose your chord progressions based on the effect that you want to go for. So if we can start teaching in that way, I think that um, students are going to um, appreciate it and understand the value of what they're learning. I forgot to add just where you can find me. Uh, my website is musictheory.com. So you can, that that's my website. And I, it's, I, I call it a, a one-stop shop for music students and music teachers that are building their businesses. I do, um, I have a lot of digital downloads, printables. Uh, I have a lot of free resources. I also have paid resources. Um, and then I do the print on demand, um, business side, uh, uh, of, of music theory shop. So I have like, 
things you will never find anywhere else. You'll never find a t-shirt that says music theorist on it (laughs) at my shop, or I love music theory. Those are the kind of, you know, mugs you'll see at my shop. So stuff like that, um, stuff that I wish that I had had, you know, in, in school. Um, and then on social, you'll find me at music theory shop pretty much everywhere, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We'll be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.